This week on the Vergecast, Liz Lepato, Addy Robertson, and Alex Heath join the show. We talk about Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter, what that means, what could happen, what he is talking about when he talks about free speech. Then Alex Heath had big soup on Meta's entire AR roadmap. We get into that. That's coming up on the Vergecast now. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello, and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the First Amendment. We're the only podcast that reads it. I've read it. I assure you that I've read the First Amendment and the associated case law. Look, I'm all about free speech here. And if anyone says I'm not, uh, they're censoring me. Anyway, I'm Neil. I'm your friend. Alex Krantz is here. I'm actually buying another social media network, so I, too, can be a champion of free speech. See, that's what you need. Market competition. Yeah. All right. Alex Heath is here. Hi. I am your fire, your one desire, <laughs> and it's been a long week. Last night, I was talking to Alex. He goes, I think I almost passed out today. Uh, and I was like, what happened? He's like, I forgot to breathe, which is like a real <laughs> thing you said to me. <laughs> He's like, I was typing so fast, I forgot to breathe. Liz Lapato is here. Hello, I bring with me tidings of Elon, as I think the longtime listeners know. The winds of Elon have brought Liz back to us once again. The winds of Elon are changing. So we got to talk about it. And by it, I mean Intel's next generation. No, I don't mean that at all. What I mean is that Elon Musk threatened to buy Twitter this week. He blew up our entire publishing schedule. We had so many great stories this week. And suddenly, our whole site, yesterday I looked at the site, and the entire top of it was Elon Musk stories. So if you will recall, I think I was not on the show the week this happened, but you were not many of you were here that week. I was trapped on a plane, I believe. Liz and I were just dropping curse words the whole time you were gone. (laughs) Yeah. Dad's out. Everybody party. Well, trust me. The curse words are coming. Free speech. (laughs) You can't, you can't shut me down. What's the FCC going to do? Half of my personality is the movie pump up the volume. (laughs) You know that scene where he drives around in the Jeep Wrangler and the FCC tries to chase him down. That's. That's, That's you. easily half of my personality. <laughs> yeah. So Elon bought 9% of Twitter. He was offered a board seat. They thought he they were tricking him from what we gather into like having a fiduciary duty to the best interest of the shareholders and a lockup provision that said he couldn't buy more than like f- almost 15% of the company. He declined this. He gets away from it. Everyone wonders, what's he going to do? He... File, he sends an, another letter saying, I offered to buy the whole thing for Liz's favorite number, uh, 54.20 a share. Uh, his, his favorite number, all of our favorite number. <laughs> Chaos ensues. He did an interview at TED, which was horrible. We'll talk about that later with Addy because it was all about content moderation. Let's we'll just start at the start. 
Alex, walk me through like what this offer is. You reported right out of the Twitter all hands yesterday. You reported a little bit on what the board was thinking. What's going on here? Yeah, so Elon is offering a bout of 43-ish billion dollar in I guess cash, we don't really know. I mean, that's the Elon of all this is that he says funding is secured. TBD, we'll see what that is. He says he has the assets to buy Twitter and take it private at a nice takeout premium, which is higher than when he started buying shares uh, towards the beginning of the year. And he notified Twitter of this one evening this week. Uh, the next morning, made it public in an SEC filing and a tweet just saying, like, I made an offer. <laughs> Twitter quickly responded and was like, uh, we're going to review this. Uh, obviously, they have to. Twitter is not a founder-controlled company like Facebook or Snap or Google. And uh, they can't just have one person be like, nah, when stuff like this happens. So they had to respond. And then the chaos that is Elon continued to ensue throughout the day. And I forgot to breathe at some point after that. You're too busy. You couldn't breathe. You had to blog. And what are you doing breathing? You don't breathe on my dime, Alex. <laughs> you breathe on your own time. <laughs> you taking breaths. There was actually a moment yesterday when uh, Keith Raboy, who's like a high-end VC, was like, the woke Twitter employees are going to see what's coming to them. One time, Elon threatened to fire all of the interns at Tesla because they were waiting in line for coffee. And it was like, what? <laughs> like, why are you turning heel so deeply right now? Just like, buy another coffee machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really like, a, you know, the phrase like reality is stranger than fiction or something like that. Like it was it was focus week for Twitter. So the employees had Monday off as a day of rest. Uh, and that was when a lot of this started. And then for the week, they were supposed to take minimal meetings and be heads down on projects. And uh the CEO then scheduled an emergency all hands that um, <laughs> got pretty interesting and, uh, you know, had some Backstreet Boys playing. So, yeah, it was uh, it, and it was the CFO's birthday, I think, when Elon made the bid as well. So, you oh, know, very good. you just you can't write this stuff. The Backstreet Boys line, by the way, is, is real. They open the meeting by playing Backstreet Boys, which is perfect. Like someone had to shoot like that's. You have to make, you, you don't just like hit the button in Zoom that's like, play some music. You're like, no, we're, let's go with Backstreet. Yeah. The first song was um, I Say a Little Prayer, and then <laughs> they jumped into I Want It That Way. <laughs> Amazing. I think we've all been saying little prayers ever since this uh, this offer became public. Yeah. Yeah. So, Liz, you are a noted Elon watcher. I believe you described yourself as a sicko yesterday. That might have been the exact phrase you used. Walk us through the Elon of this all. Okay. Well, I just want to say, like, although he's got Morgan Stanley advising him, he says that funding is contingent on winning. And if this seems familiar, it's because he doesn't have funding lined up. And like <laughs> during his TED talk, he was like, well, I don't I don't I could buy Twitter, but I don't want to, which who could blame him because he'd have to sell a bunch of Tesla shares and that would make the Tesla people very unhappy. So the funding is TBD. And if this were anybody else, I would say this is not a serious offer because serious offers have funding lined up. But in Elon's case, it's impossible to tell what's serious and what's some kind of joke, which is like, you know, uh, Matt Levine has suggested Twitter come back to him with another price, which is uh, the other fun internet number, $69 a share. Uh, <laughs> nice. 
which you know what I like that I like I like how he's thinking here. But you know, if you if you consider what he's doing, I, I gotta say, like, I kind of feel like he's just fucking with Twitter because the share price is you know, it's it's relatively low compared to where Twitter has been trading since like last year. Like I think it was in the sixties in October and in the seventies like a year ago. So like relatively recently the the share price was trading at more than uh, a lot more than what he's offering. Well, the other thing that I notice about shares, because the secret of shares is like, they're just like feelings. Like this is just people putting money mm-hmm. on like their feelings. That's that's all the market is. Now you're a trader. <laughs> I notice that the shares were trading well below where the offer was all of yesterday, which means that the market doesn't believe it's real. Now, if the market did believe it's real, it would be trading at the same price or around the price of the offer. And if they thought there was going to be somebody else jumping in, like, for instance, Disney, they would be trading above the offer. So you can look at that and you can say, oh, these people are familiar with Elon Musk. They're aware that sometimes when he says he wants to take a company private, he's just kidding. (laughs) uh let's we got to talk about that specific line of elon in a minute but real quick liz i think most people are vaguely aware that you can offer to buy a company but there's like a lot of steps before the company is actually yours so what's the process here that elon would have to go through so I, the first, this is a hostile bid. So that's, that in and of itself is unusual. Ordinarily, one works with companies' management to like come together with a, a thing that will be acceptable to major shareholders. And this is not what's happening here. This is Elon's like, I got a bid. So Twitter has to think about it. They have like a whole fiduciary duty. Um, the board is going to be thinking about it. But I, if I'm Elon right now, I'm out here pressuring shareholders to pressure the board. So I'm calling them. I'm saying things like in that script that we all saw that was filed with the SEC mm-hmm. where it's like, this is my best and final offer. And I, you know what, I'm going to sell all my shares if it doesn't work, which in Elon's case is like a little bit like, hmm, okay, this is this is hardball. This is like some Carl Icahn shit we got going on here. All right, Elon. Because he created a premium by getting into the stock by having his ownership announced, which is the sort of thing that you associate actually with corporate raiders. Like that's also what happens when Carl Icahn gets into a stock. So Twitter's board has to think this through, like just because I'm a I'm a lady who is like maybe not particularly privy to this stuff. I I think it's going to be like, I don't think that the board is going to say yes to this. <laughs> just speaking as somebody who doesn't know anybody on the board or doesn't like have any connections to the board, I feel like if I were on the board, I'd be like, <laughs> no. But what's interesting here is now the company is in play. So there could potentially be another bidder. The market doesn't totally believe it. But if I'm a tech company and I ever wanted to acquire Twitter, like now's the moment because one of the things that the board can do is come back with somebody else's better offer and say, sorry, Elon. Yeah. So, Alex, you were tracking a little bit of this yesterday. Twitter's management and board is kind of an interesting spot, right? Jack Dorsey left. He basically said, my hand-selected successor is Prague Agarwal, as CEO, and my hand-selected chairman of the board is this guy, Brett Taylor. And he's like, these are my guys. I picked them. I love them. They're Jack's guys. They were... I, you can't but like if someone came to your job and was like, we think you've been doing a really bad job, so we're just going <laughs> to take it from here. Like it's I don't think it's instinctual for you to be like, I agree with you. Uh, and I, after having accepted this job, I will, in fact, recede into the distance and let you destroy whatever it is I was supposed to be in charge of. Like, especially for a young CEO who has no name otherwise, like that's just like you're done, right? Like you're you might as well just ride off into the sunset. Like your career kind of stops there. So what were you hearing yesterday, Alex? Well, 
I think every, I mean, obviously I think Liz is right. The board doesn't want to do this. I think that was the tone of the, the all hands with employees was Prague was, you know, I think employees were because Prague and the leadership had not directly addressed uh, Elon besides Prague tweeting when he decided not to join the board uh, and saying distractions are ahead, foreboding kind of what was to come. Employees were expecting, I think, at this emergency all hands to kind of get some more clarity about where the company was leaning, what the timeline was going to look like here, because this could be a protracted, messy thing, especially if they have to run an official bidding process. And these large companies take time to review review these deals. So, you know, that's not really what happened. And Parag was like, look, for legal reasons, I can't really say, but I can just say that we're following a rigorous process, yada, yada. Everything was obviously very lawyered. They knew it was going to leak like almost in real time. Uh, It wasn't quite in real time, but we got ours up like right when it ended. So our, our story on it. So yeah, it was a. I would say a. Um, there was a sense of resistance, but from Parag, he said something about how you know we're not going to be held hostage, and you know basically saying that like it's too early to speculate about what it would look like if we were taken private because there's big implications for employees in that you know if that happens because what happens to their stock options. There were questions about layoffs, which is something I was actually hearing before this meeting was the moment Elon announced his interest. I had like three Twitter employees to be like, there's going to be layoffs. (laughs) Like, absolutely. (laughs) Like Twitter is fairly bloated relative to the money it makes and its tech peers. So those are the questions on people's minds, which to me says people think that this is, you know, the rank and file thinks this is probably happening no matter what, at least like there's going to be a messy, maybe bad outcome for them from this. And so in that way, you know, there's a maybe a fear that management at Twitter has kind of lost faith, you know, that the employees have, have lost faith in them to a degree a little bit. One was like, are we just going to be letting any billionaire who wants a board seat, <laughs> give them a board seat? Are we going to just like do this for everyone now? <laughs> I mean, who asked? yeah, <laughs> they got enough money, right? Yeah. And it's an interesting time for Elon to be doing this because Jack is on the board for like another month or so before the next board votes on the new board seats. And so I don't know, you know, my favorite conspiracy theory here is that Jack and Elon are aligned on this. And this is Jack's sweet revenge on Elliott management, which was the last active investor that came into Twitter and uh, really kind of led to Jack stepping aside and, and naming Parag last November. Yeah, walk us through that. There, there's a, a lot of detail to explore there. Before you walk us through it, we need to have the succession theme play because this is like very, <laughs> like this is a very succession <sighs> theme moment here. Oh my God. I had a very senior former Twitter person be like, text me right before Elon walked out on stage at Ted and be like, I have money on Jack walking out with him on stage at Ted, <laughs> which is like, yeah, that, that's, that's better than whatever the next. Jack wanted to take the company private a while ago, didn't he? Yeah. So I had done some reporting a couple of years ago that, you know, the last time Twitter ran a formal sales process was around 2016. And that was when Salesforce and Disney were the two kind of lead suitors and Bob Iger and Mark Benioff have talked publicly about that. There were two other players who didn't get as far, Apple and Google, that were looking, Eddie Q at Apple and Sundar at Google. And there were also some offers informally to take the company private at the time. And this was when Twitter's valuation was like $10 billion, and it was just really almost struggling more than it has been since, which is like hard to think about. So I had heard from someone kind of directly involved in those talks that Jack was in favor of taking the company private at that time. And it makes sense because Twitter has just, 
when you have these quarterly expectations in the market and you're comped to Facebook, which has just been this unstoppable growth juggernaut for over a decade, and even like Snap, Snap has added like a hundred more, a hundred million more users than Twitter, and it's like four years younger as a company and been public way less. So Twitter's just really struggled relative to its peer set, and it could probably use the insulation that going private would provide it, right? Where like they can actually go heads down and focus on just not these near term quarterly benchmarks they need to meet, but like really, really, you know, reinvent the product. And Jack and Elon saw eye to eye on that. You know, they both talk about open sourcing the algorithm, which God, we got to get into that because that makes absolutely no sense. None. You know, opening up the algorithms because that'll solve everything. And, you know, crypto decentralization, Put making it a protocol again, going back to the Tweety days when like all these clients were sat on top of Twitter and invented, you know, the best parts of Twitter. And I could see there's an argument to be made that Jack maybe wants this in the background. And the fact that Elon is doing this while Jack is still on the board and still has about 2%, it's like the timing of that's very interesting. So Jack had a tweet what, a couple weeks ago now where he was like, I now realize that centralizing all internet services was a mistake and I am to blame. And then someone was like, well, fix it. And he was like, I'm working on it. And I've just been thinking about that, that little interaction in this context a lot. Cause he, Twitter has this program called blue sky, which has been moving at an absolutely glacial pace, which is designed to decentralize Twitter and turn it into a protocol. When I say a glacial pace, I mean, every six months they're like, We've hired one more person. <laughs> We're up to four, right? Yes. Like they recently announced. So it's actually a separate legal entity. It's like a nonprofit that Twitter funds. They're not the only funder. And Jack is on the board of Blue Sky, and he's about to leave the board of Twitter. And he just joined Blue Sky. Interesting note. But continue, Eli. Yeah, I just put the. It's they haven't. You know how I feel about vaporware. You can tell me you're going to do shit all day long, right? You have to do it. And they've, they've not shipped a single line of code. They've shipped a white paper and a bunch of press releases about people they've hired. Well, you know, Jack is very into crypto. So that's like kind of standard in that world. Um, although in fairness, <laughs> I should say he is a Bitcoin maxi and not into crypto per se so much as he's just into Bitcoin. Right. He's the one who's beefing with Chris Dixon about Andreessen Horowitz uh, being just like another like a VC front for Web3. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Bitcoin is the alpha and the omega. Web3 is just another way for VCs to own the internet. Like that's Jack very publicly beefing with the people who are funding Web3, however you want to define it. Next to that is Elon, who who just loves Twitter. Like the man just loves Twitter. Liz, you mentioned Matt Levine earlier. In a, he's a, a, a columnist for Bloomberg. In one of his columns, I think earlier, like last week maybe, he was like, if you're really rich and you play a video game all the time, you're going to have ideas about the video game. And that is Elon and Twitter, right? Like it's a video game that he constantly plays and stuff like open up the algorithm. Like that's the sort of idea you might have about it. Like I have a million ideas on how to fix Madden NFL. Like I, every day I could just generate a list and there's like what I think should happen and like reality of that game and how it is architected. And so if you think Elon can just buy it and open source Twitter or buy it and turn it into a protocol, the technical effort to do that is extraordinarily high the company is already trying to do some of that stuff and hasn't done any of it. And all the employees are pissed off and thinking about leaving or, or worried about being laid off. Like, I don't know how you go from here to there. And Elon hasn't really laid it out. Yeah, I mean, there was a pretty senior Twitter person who I saw tweet in response to someone uh, saying, like, what will you do if Elon takes over? And he's like, and she was like, well, you know, I hope he likes working at a company with no employees. 
And <laughs> like she was like the head of like machine learning or something. So yeah, open sourcing the algorithm. Can we talk about this? Because, yeah. you know, I actually, I just did a story a couple of weeks ago about, you know, Facebook, it took them six months to try to figure out what went wrong with the newsfeed algorithm. This is the people who directly work on the newsfeed literally did not know what broke for months and they're still dissecting it. Like I've heard from people who work on these kind of algorithms at these social media companies, they don't really know how they work fully. It's all, it's like a Pandora's box that once you open, these things have millions of signals and the idea that like, it's this one algorithm that everyone can just like look at and dissect and know uh, all of its inputs and outputs. The whole point of this is that it's different for every single person. These algorithms are really just like a reflection of like your most carnal desires. Right? <laughs> like, like they are a distorted mirror of you and your worst impulses. Well, a lot of them. But I mean, it's Twitter's though. Like Twitter, I always envision as having the most simplistic yeah, I mean, because that's not what we a, envision about Twitter in every well, case. Yeah, because <laughs> like this is not TikTok that like knows I like skiing before I did. This is like pretty simple. As someone who woke up this morning and was seeing tweets from 17 hours ago at the top of my feed and had to switch to chronological because I was like, I saw this yesterday and have that experience on a daily basis. You're right. The Twitter algorithm is not really that good at mind reading. But my point is just that the algorithm is different for every single person. And I think we're fooling ourselves to say that like millions of people care or want to know the innards of like the feed <laughs> that is giving them information. I mean, I don't think millions, but one of these algorithms being open source is a fascinating thing because we don't really have one now to my knowledge. And, and, and having those researchers and those people in the open source community having access and starting to tweak with these things and, and deal with them is really interesting. I think for Twitter itself, it makes zero sense and is super stupid. But like, I think 90% of Twitter's business is kind of stupid. Like, it's not a company that's making a lot of money. It's not a company that's building subscribers. Everything about this is just like a billionaire kind of shitposting his way into notoriety with a company that he can afford to do it with. I also don't know that like the algorithm is the problem with Twitter. <laughs> like I just I just want to be super real about like what Twitter is. It's like an, an an all versus all hostile zone where like you know roving gangs of people form and like it uh, so I'm going to compare it to 4chan in a very limited way, which is that it is... <laughs> this is getting good. It is a nexus of internet culture from which a lot of internet culture comes, but it is also a very hostile environment. And now the mechanics of it work differently from 4chan, like in ways that are like maybe not worth discussing right at this very moment. But in terms of like users, it's a relatively small base compared to like most of the other social media platforms. But it has this like outsized hold on the public's imagination, A of all, because every journalist is like addled by Twitter because we're all there because that's like what we do instead of like RSS feeds because Google Reader doesn't exist anymore. So Google, thank you. This is your fault. RSS feeds. I, it would not be the Vorchess if I didn't remind that RSS feeds still exist. There are many independent RSS readers over there and I'm counting on Google to be the sole shepherd of the open <laughs> internet was always a mistake. <laughs> That's it. Just my little digression. The end. 
So there's that. But also, like, we have these 24-hour cable news networks that, like, need to, like, put stuff on television. And so what do they do? They open up Twitter. They read tweets out loud. And, like, that's, like, a segment. As somebody who, like, has a cable news contract, I feel comfortable saying the majority of mainstream cable news is a podcast of people reading tweets. Yes. And then, like, and I'm not saying that's not our podcast. Like, it's not, like, the harshest criticism in the world. Like, we're talking about one guy who tweets a lot. We've been doing it for 26 minutes. So, like, (laughs) maybe that's all news now. But the point about, like, what Twitter is, whether it has a ranking algorithm or not, the problem is actually expressed in whether the ranking algorithm for Twitter is its product or not. Facebook's product is a ranking algorithm. TikTok's product is a ranking algorithm, right? Google's product is the world's most successful ranking algorithm. You express some interest to one of these platforms and they have a huge data set of all the other people. YouTube has a huge data set of all the other people who have contributed content and then they show it to you. Twitter, you log in as a new user and it's like, the worst shit in the world is gonna immediately start (laughs) happening to you. And maybe you will find NBA Twitter or maybe you will distract yourself with media Twitter. Like maybe you will find some pocket of film Twitter. That's great. But at any moment, as Liz said, the angriest hordes of people might find you or the worst possible thing that could happen to you. Your tweet will go viral and like (laughs) Fox news will write about you. Like the worst possible things could happen to you at any moment on the Twitter platform. I had a tweet go viral about Elon, uh, and the day of the week of focus and the day of rest and the timing of it all. And it was just, it was that person. It was just like his bot farms and his like, you know, people calling me an idiot and all these things saying, I don't understand things. Like I got like unsolicited, like, hate mail. (laughs) It's like, it's like just for a tweet. And that was because it was about Elon, the guy trying to take Twitter. We should know like Elon has a like massive bot army that follows him on Twitter and amplifies and it attacks his critics. And he said that he wants to get rid of bots, but like, it's just very ironic to me that that's the case that like this, this one individual has that. Well, like, I think a lot of people fail to understand that Elon's success at this point his current success is kind of based on Twitter and this like this fandom he's created around himself that's centralized on Twitter. Yeah. Right. I think Elon might feel that way. And I think we might feel that way. I'm not entirely like, I don't know the conversion rate between having a bot army and lots of followers on Twitter to Tesla sales. Right. And Tesla has apparently like inelastic demand. Like you can price a Tesla at any number or produce any number of Teslas and all of them will sell. Like they can't, every Tesla they make at any price will sell out, right? What does that have to do with the Twitter army? I'm like dying here because like I have been covering Elon Musk for a very long time and like, yeah, like welcome to tweeting about Elon Musk. Like those aren't all bots. Like some of those are just people who can't spell very well, uh, which you, you discover <laughs> if you reply to them. So Tesla is the original meme stock. And like one of the things that was going on with Tesla shares you know, in 2016, 2017, 2018 is like Elon Musk can make the shares go up by tweeting positive things about Tesla. And like he's been disclosed in their company filings as being like a source of legitimate information. Like his Twitter account is in there, a legitimate source of information about the stock. I take your point, Eli, about like being a little 
cautious about wanting to say that like he's built his army on Twitter, but like I, I kind of think he has. And like he is maybe the most important financial influencer currently going. Like he can send cryptocurrency up and down just by tweeting about it, you know? Yeah. There was the brief period where Tesla was accepting Bitcoin and that made Bitcoin go up. And then Tesla like stopped accepting Bitcoin and Bitcoin went down. And like he's tweeted about Doge and Doge has gone up. So I do think that there's something very real here, and it's because so many finance people are on Twitter. Like, I don't, you mm-hmm. gotta, you gotta, you gotta want to be on finance Twitter. I'll be real with you, because a lot of penny stock guys that hate you. <laughs> but like, there is a very real community. Like, tweets show up on the Bloomberg terminal, and so that's another reason why Twitter is so powerful. Like, all of these communities, like, it's just, it's like the most hardcore people in any given community yeah. are all on Twitter together. And so, Elon Musk, like, Twitter is really a source of power for him because again he can he can really move real world stocks by by tweeting about them and like if you remember the GameStop thing in January 2020 there are a bunch of people who made a lot of money by realizing that an Elon Musk tweet was the top and immediately selling as soon as they saw it you know <laughs> I, look i'm not saying it's a, i'm not saying it's zero i'm saying it's not 100 and we don't there's no way of uh, knowing right like what is the conversion rate between an Elon tweet and people buying it. Like, I don't know. That would be an amazing PhD thesis. Someone should do it and then we'll write about it. Like, yeah. I would love to know that information. If you're an economist. Yeah. By the way, my, during the game stuff, this reminds me, we, well, this, the next hour is just going to be talking about tweets that went viral and how bad it was. <laughs> Like I did like the most Neelai tweet during the whole GameStop fiasco and Robinhood was stopping uh, sales. Yeah. And I was like, here's a screenshot of the terms of service. Like this is what happens when everyone just hits agree without reading it. And then like the hordes descended on me that I was not being sympathetic to the plight of the retail investor. And I was like, no, I'm just in my bag. Like this is what I talk about. Like every day is terms of service agreements. Like I had nothing to say to you. Anyhow. My like, broader point is like Elon loves this service. When Addy comes on, we're going to talk about whether it's a town square or any of that noise. <laughs> but the core of the problem, like we keep kind of, kind of dancing around. We should just say it out loud. Twitter needs to grow in order to grow. It needs to be much more consumer friendly. It needs to be a f- much friendlier environment to just sign up for. You want to get a hundred million users, which is what Prague Agarwal is supposed to do in his tenure as CEO. You cannot like, you cannot have this experience with Twitter for initiate a hundred million new people who want to use your service every day. That's not how TikTok grew. That's not how YouTube grew. That's not how snap is growing. Those are friendly, meaningfully safer environments than Twitter. But then the thing that makes Twitter valuable is just like the state of nature for nerds, right? We're like, life is bloody and short on Twitter, but if you're a nerd, it's where you want to be. Right. And like, I don't know, man. Like fucking, can you sell nature red in tooth and claw to a hundred million more people? Like, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think we can because people keep comparing Twitter to, to Facebook or to Snap or whatever. But really, its main comparison is Tumblr. Like, it's a place, <laughs> it's a place that's like developing fans and fandoms. And whether that's an Elon fandom or a TV show fandom or movies or, you know, tech, well, a lot of us or in that fandom, it, it, it's building like a fandom. It's building like a, a community of like weirdos who want to talk about this stuff. Facebook is not super great at that. Snap is not super great at that. Tumblr was, I guess, okay at it. Twitter is really good at it. 
And that's like, but that's also like a small market. Those weird obsessives, mm-hmm. I say that as one, those weird obsessives, like that's a small group of people. I don't think Twitter, can, like, unless it fundamentally changes its approach and how it, it operates, it's never going to move out of that. And I don't think it necessarily should. Uh, yeah. I mean, Alex, yeah. I'm curious your, your view here, right? So yeah. you've got a company that had an activist investor that kicked out the founder CEO. They brought in the new CEO. He said, we're going to grow it. There's one way to grow it, which is to make it friendlier and to expo- expose more of the good things to more people and get them to sign up and engage. Then you've got Elon, who wants to, quote, open source the algorithm, which implies the algorithm is important. And we have all been talking about the algorithm is like not what Twitter's power users care about. And it is bad. So you can open source it all day, right? Like the ranking algorithm on Twitter shows you tweets from 17 hours ago or whatever. Like the product isn't good. But somewhere in there is, I mean, that's the story of Twitter whipsawing between not having a chronological feed or doing the home feed by default and making you hit 15 buttons to click back to chronological recently and then walking that back because all their power users. Like that dynamic between the people who make Twitter what it is and the people it needs to attract the service are radically different, have radically different needs. That's been the motivating dynamic of Twitter, I think maybe the whole time. And I don't see it. I don't actually know where the company is on that perspective now. And I don't know if Elon's going to knock it off that path, whatever it is. Funny you asked, Neil. I did yeah. an interview with Twitter's new product leadership team about three weeks ago talking <laughs> about this. And uh, before Elon came in, they were addressing, hoping to address a lo- under a full-time CEO for the first time in years, and we should note, like, the reason Twitter has been so stagnant as a product is because Jack let it run by committee because uh, he was part-time and only waited on things he cared about. And so it was just this, like, imagine a company like Twitter being run by, like, 12 executives who need to, like, figure out their little fiefdoms. Uh, it, no, it didn't get anywhere. Right now, they they are trying to reignite it and also turn it back a little bit to the early days, which I think is the answer here. If we were, like, up until 2015, Twitter was... There were there was a VC fund that was literally just investing in Twitter clients. Um, like there was a whole economy. People thought that Twitter was going to be this platform, and the best features of Twitter were invented by developers who were building on top of Twitter. And then we remember when they pulled the API out from everyone when they realized we've got to bring everyone into our client because we need to sell advertising. We're going to start gating our new features to our client, and they slowly choked the life out of the tweet decks, the tweeties, etc. Um, I was just talking to their head of the guy, the lead guy that's trying to bring the API back to those early days, like a few weeks ago. So they were wanting to, and then in the background, they eventually want to just put it on like a decentralized protocol where Twitter is one of the platforms that then has clients on top of it, right? So they want to like really abstract this and turn it into like a, a protocol for others to build on similar to email, similar to RSS. And that's a unique point of view in the world. Uh, Facebook, Snap, all these other social media companies, they're becoming like their own silos, their own super apps, trying to pull all the interactions into their client. So that's the opportunity I think Twitter has to do something unique in the world. And also kind of it aligns with the public nature of Twitter. And also they're finally starting to look into subscriptions, which has been like everyone's been saying, and Elon was saying this, he would want the company to do subscriptions and to charge its highest users. I guess maybe not him. Maybe he gets a special discount there. But, um, you know, charge these accounts that use these as their main marketing. You know, Tesla doesn't spend anything on marketing because Elon has a Twitter account with 80 million users. 
Twitter to Elon is worth billions of dollars a year. And they could be charging for that kind of stuff. And, you know, like I pay for Twitter blue because I want to change my app icon. And I'm <laughs> like, it doesn't really do anything. They put nuzzle in it. Like, cool. Like they're going to bring edit tweet to it. Cool. But like they just haven't really, they're starting to show signs of willingness to experiment again, but they haven't really leaned into it fully, but they were in the process before Elon came in. So it's like they didn't get the chance to really try so it's like, it's just kind of sad in that way that now everyone's like been derailed by this because they were really trying to turn the ship around. Um, and they had this gun to their head, which was this growth target that their activist investor gave them. I do feel bad for the new CEO, right? Like, yeah. Can you imagine getting that job and being all excited? And then he had a baby. He's supposed to he, be on parental leave. <laughs> yeah. And he made and he made this like, I think, extremely cool public declaration that even after taking the new job as a CEO, he was going on leave to like set an example that leave should be like, I love that. I love this dude. Bro, come on, decoder. He's not going to do it. I don't. I don't think I'm getting any Twitter executives for a while. But Elon Prague, you are uh, invited. Come on, decoder. Let's let's talk. But I just I feel bad for that guy in particular. Like I don't know if his vision was right. I don't know if it was going to work. It seems very clear he was never. He's never going to get the shot to do whatever he wanted. Free of interference. Yeah, I agree. And now, what is the best outcome of this? I mean, it's that Elon potentially backs out. I mean, I don't want to like. He backs out, the stock tanks, maybe they get some other passive investor in there, and morale is destroyed, and people's options are underwater. Or Elon does take it private, and then people quit en masse. Like, those are kind of the two options right now, which is, like, not a good sign. Would the stock tank if he backs out? Like, because it yeah. hasn't changed. It didn't change when he he announced he was going to buy it. Well, there's still his premium in there from when he first disclosed his stake. It would go it would go 30 or below for sure. Yeah. So, Alex, I think that those are two possible outcomes. I do not think that they are the only possible outcomes. And again, the reason I don't think so is because now Twitter is in play. And it is an incredibly influential service for all that it is like all versus all fighting and like very unpleasant if you have more than about 2000 followers. Because whoever controls Twitter controls a lot of what happens on cable news. And like, to some degree, you know, um, buying Twitter, like there was this comparison that I saw on on Twitter, mm. <laughs> um, but about, you know, Bezos buying the Washington Post and Musk buying Twitter. And like, they are actually pretty comparable. Like the Washington Post, I think Bezos has been a great steward of. But with Twitter, what you're controlling is essentially the comments section for the entire internet. And that's really powerful. So, you know, if I'm uh, at another tech company, I'm like calling my lawyers to see what I can buy without triggering antitrust. This was the Mark Cuban tweet. Yeah, because right. like that, like that actually is a very, very powerful tool for marketing, for culture making, for all of those things. And I think that there are probably people out there who are interested in the in it and like, at this point, you know, if you're the board, maybe you're looking for a white knight. So, like, we might see another player emerge. I know you're totally right. I would not discount the power of ego for some of this. Like, if you're one of those players, you get to put one over on Elon. Like, that's fun. <laughs> there's more interest in that than I think you would imagine. No, I guarantee you, if if the year was 2015 and antitrust scrutiny had not reached what it was, Mark Zuckerberg has a blank check right now. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Like, what he did for WhatsApp, he put this, like, uh, like Zuck multiple on it that made no sense, like he did for Instagram, like he's done for all the deals he cares about. He'd buy Twitter for $100 billion if he could get it right I, now. But he's also just a rich guy. Like, why isn't he just staking someone else to do it? 
<laughs> like, I, there's like a lot of that out there, right? Like, you actually, do you know who doesn't? Act, we never got to this, but you know who doesn't like have all the cash to do this is Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. he does not. No, he he's he's not liquid, and he's already got a bunch of loans against his shares. Tesla shares. Yeah. Maybe he'll just like, I don't know, sell advertising inside of SpaceX rockets, like race funds. <laughs> uh, we've gone way over on this segment. Liz, thank you so much. I imagine you're going to be back to talk about this a few times over the next few weeks. Listen, I, you know, I got relaxed, right? Like after 2018, like things calmed down and I was like, okay, okay. Like I don't have to like, I don't have to constantly pay attention to Elon. I can take the alerts off his tweets and now I regret it because the Elon cycle has started again. So I'm sure <laughs> we're going to be talking about this again. <laughs> Liz, every now and again, I would get a text message from Liz, like in the e- depths of early on cycles, she was like, he's Eloning again. Yeah. And like the Elon Musk war room would spin up in Slack. Like, <laughs> here we are. It's great. All right. We got to take a break. Addy Robertson is going to come and join us to talk about content moderation, because that's another whole side of this. Thank you, Liz. We'll be right back. Support of the Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. We're back. Eddie Robertson is here. Hey, Eddie. Hey. So, uh, and Alex, is, Alex Heath is still here, and Alex Kranz. Hello. So, Addy, we've been talking about Elon and Twitter, of course. We just had Liz on. We were mostly talking about the mechanics of the deal, what would happen. Twitter's a company. I wanted you on. You and I have spent an awful lot of time in our lives talking about content moderation and free speech and all the stuff. Elon seems very motivated to somehow change how Twitter moderates. And yesterday, I don't know if this was by coincidence or by design or just the pure chaotic energy of the universe. He was on stage at TED. You might remember TED. TED, the once influential conference for big thoughts. Uh, we all we all signed up for a free stream of TED yesterday because Elon was going to be there. And we like sat through what appeared to be like a ninth grade social studies course on Immanuel Kant and John Stuart Mill. Like I literally read John Stuart Mill when I was in ninth grade. And Ted was like, have you heard have you heard of John Stuart Mill? Like, I don't know what's <laughs> going on there. If you have, like, you should read it. It's foundations of Western liberalism were contained in John Stuart Mill, but I don't know why the Ted audience needed to know that information. Anyway, so Chris Anderson, who's the head of Ted, uh, sat down for an interview with Elon 
I would describe that interview as uh, embarrassingly stupid, just on both ends. Like, it was just real bad. But we did learn some bits and bobs about what Elon thinks. And given just our history and covering it, I think there's some challenges ahead. So, Eddie, you want to walk through what, what we think we learned about Elon's approach to content moderation on Twitter? Yeah, so... Uh- There is a very long string of dumb things that were said that I'm sure that maybe we'll get into in more detail. But basically, Elon Musk says, "Okay, we understand that we want this to be a platform for global free speech, but we know that you're going to have to follow laws. And we think basically Twitter should just follow the laws of countries, which implies sort of that there's supposed to be just like a First Amendment Twitter But at the same time, he also is really mad about bots and spam. So he wants to get rid of bots because bots are not part of free speech, uh, mostly because he's mad about cryptocurrency shilling, uh, it seems like. And then at the same time, he's very worried about the idea that there's an opaque algorithm that is demoting or promoting tweets in ways that are not visible, which is one of those things that it was a big meme and sort of conservative circles several years ago that the idea that there was shadow banning, quote unquote, that was making it harder to search for things. But I'm not entirely certain what he's referring to in this particular case, because Twitter tends to be kind of upfront about telling people when they're banned (laughs) and about telling people like they deranked Russian news outlet, like state news outlet information and tweets, but they were just like, yes, we're going to do this. We're telling you about this thing proactively. So I'm, it feels like he's responding to a bunch of things that are a little bit weird and confusing and not actually the speech challenges that Twitter faces. Yeah. Let's start with open source algorithm. Cause we were just talking about it in the previous segment a little bit. All these platforms have done things to try to be more transparent. The thing that occurs to me in just listening to people blather on about open source algorithms. And Elon was like, we'll just put it on GitHub and people can leave comments. That has no connection to being transparent about what happens to an individual tweet, right? Like if you are, if you think you can derive what happened to your tweet from the code being on GitHub, you are the single best computer scientist in the history of the world, right? Like there's no way, like, I don't know how you would do that. What you want is a button on every tweet that says this was downranked or upranked or your, I don't know, your army of Tesla people was busy watching a baseball game today. So they didn't see like you want some of that information or like Jack was mad at you and he turned down the big knob in his office that said Elon's reach, right? Like that's the thing you're actually after. The code might tell you that those buttons and knobs exist, but they will not actually tell you how they're used. So just like from the jump, there's this massive discrepancy in the outcome you want and the solution proposed. Yes. It also does not mention really how, I guess you leave a comment on GitHub and then there's just an army of moderators that will check and be like, okay, so all the tweets that we moderated based on this, turns out we should have done that differently. Like it doesn't, the appeals (laughs) process is also a huge part of how Twitter works and why it's frustrating when it's frustrating. And we didn't really learn much about that. Yeah. So that's open source algorithm, which I feel like we can just dispense with. Although I will say that when pressed in this interview on any specific, Elon returned to the idea of open source algorithm as though it was like his happy place. Like there, here's this very, I mean, just embarrassingly stupid exchange. Uh, this is my, I'm just going to, I'm going to end up repeating this until I die. So Chris Anderson is like, here's the challenge. I'm just quoting Chris Anderson. It's a nuanced difference between different things. There's incitement to violence. That's a no, if it's illegal, 
which I would just say <laughs> implies that there is some some form of legal incitement to violence, which if you can discover, like, let me know, because is that just like, let's do swords. And like, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Really, <laughs> whatever. So there's incitements to violence. That's a no if it's legal. There's hate speech, which some forms of hate speech are fine. I hate spinach, which <laughs> like I just like echoing through my head. Like you didn't prepare. You don't know what you're talking about. All right. So then here's the example. Elon says spinach is delicious if it's sauteed in cream sauce. This is all ha- actually happened. Then Chris Anderson says, let's say I tweet, I hate politician X. The next tweet is I wish politician X wasn't alive. And then he qualifies this. Some of us have said this about Putin right now. So that's legitimate speech. <laughs> is that I'm just like, an, like if you're like, you know what, if it's about that guy or some of us have said it, that's obvious. Like I said it. So that's obviously cool. Who knows? Uh, and then another tweet is, I wish politician X wasn't alive, alive with a picture of their head over with a gun sight over it, plus their address. At some point, someone has to make a decision as to which of those is not okay. Can an algorithm do that? The answer to that question is fucking of course not. <laughs> I'd also like to point out none of that is hate speech. Yeah, like none of it's hate speech. But also like, like, not even, forget whether it's legal or not. None of that actually is what people who hate, who are like upset about hate speech say is hate speech. <laughs> <laughs> I hate spinach. Some some hate speech is okay. I hate spinach. I hate spinach is actually closer to hate speech than I don't. I want this politician dead. <laughs> uh, whatever. So he says an algorithm do that. I would just point out if you asked any four people you know, like the four of us, or like four of your friends to make determinations on how to rank those things as acceptable or unacceptable speech, we would all disagree. That is the nature of these debates. So can an algorithm do that? I was like, I don't know, man, probably not. Just based on what I know about human nature. So he says, surely you need some human judgment at that point. Fine. He, He has minorly rescued himself. Elon's response to this is just, in my view, Twitter should match the laws of the country. That's it. That's his answer. And he's like, there's an obligation to that. But going beyond that and having it be unclear as to who's making what changes to where, having tweets mysteriously promoted and demoted, having a black box algorithm promote some things, not other things, I think this can be quite dangerous. None of that is an answer to, I've given you three tweets, which one is unacceptable? By the way, what's the deal with spinach? And like the whole conversation is, here's something that appears to be a hard question. And Elon's saying, open the algorithm up in some way. And I just don't see the connection between the two, Addy. I'm wondering if you do. I don't either. It, it feels, this is a thing that it feels like a bunch of people do in policy. I hear it mostly with antitrust and speech where it's like, oh, well, okay, so what's the problem with moderation? Is it that these companies are too big? Which is like, okay, fair, <laughs> these are problems, but there's, it, you can't just like fix one thing in tech and platforms and everything else gets fixed with it. This all just seems, there's so many non sequiturs in that interview. It really, it was extremely frustrating. Let me give you my favorite one. (laughs) I'm sorry. This whole thing was so stupid. So Elon says, obviously, Twitter or any form is bound by the laws of the country it operates in. So obviously, there are some limitations in free speech in the United States. He says, obviously, there's some limitations. And Twitter have to abide by those rules. And then Chris Anderson follows up. So you can't incite people to violence, like direct incitement to violence. You can't do the equivalent of crying fire in a movie theater, for example. And Elon responds with, that is a crime. It should be a crime. Now, <laughs> I will tell you that you can walk into any theater in America and yell fire, and it is not a crime. It's not a crime. It, it definitely should not be a crime. There's a long history of that. 
people who say that kind of immediately out themselves as having no idea what's going on. Addie, you want to kind of explain? I, I could try, but I'll just start crying. Yeah. I'm the, there are actually very, very good explanations online. The Atlantic did a really fantastic one. But the long story short is there has never been a case about whether there was a crowded theater and some guy cried fire. It was a metaphor that was used in a case, a Supreme Court case that was... What was it, what was it about? It was about draft speech, right? Yes, it was World War One. Um, a husband or two people. I don't remember if it was a husband or wife, but two people were distributing leaflets in the run up to World War One, saying you should disobey the draft because war is bad. They were socialists, and the government arrested them. And the Supreme Court said that's cool. You can limit their speech in that way because they're creating a clear and present danger to the United States of America. Which was like shouting fire in a crowded theater. With the metaphor is like, certainly there are some limits. And that was the metaphor. And then this was later overturned, if I remember correctly. And so not only was it not a thing that happened, it was a metaphor for a thing that wasn't even, that is at this point no longer even current. Yes. So that uh, shank was overturned in part by, what's it, Brandenburg? Yeah, it's Brandenburg, uh, Ohio. I don't remember what that case was about. Brandenburg was a guy. He talked. Ohio was mad at him. I don't know. But they threw out clear and present danger, which is where that phrase comes from. They threw out the whole case and they replaced it and said the government cannot punish inflammatory speech unless it directly incites or produces imminent lawless action. And that's it. Like, that's the thing, the government. So if you are like, I want everyone to write, let's do swords yeah. <laughs> right now against a guy <laughs> uh, <laughs> is like. You're directing people towards imminent lawless action. The, the government can stop that speech. Right. This had, that's the limit of the First Amendment. So all this other stuff is not like Twitter would just have to let it go if they're going to be restricted by the First Amendment. Also, Clear and Present Danger is a great Harrison Ford film. Just wonderful movie. But well, so, so the U.S.ness of this is fascinating because like most uh, actual American-based social media companies, the vast majority of Twitter's users are not in the United States. <laughs> and the promise of Twitter is that someone in one country can talk and tweet to someone in another. So either you're going to geolock Twitter and its ad tech stack and its everything to every country you operate in, or... You have to pick some balance of the U.S. Constitution, what the EU wants, what India wants, which is increasingly less democratic. Uh, and China's just like, no, you can't be here. Right. So, like, how do you navigate all that? And if you're going to abide by the laws of the country you operate in, this every platform is tied up in this right now because you can't really do it. You can't like like Facebook has this problem all the time. And I just don't see Elon really wrestling with that. In the interview, it wasn't brought up at all. So the funny thing is Twitter has done that in that Twitter had to deal with this with hate speech in Germany and France around 2012. And its solution was withholding tweets, which is that you can like be a Nazi on Twitter and post Nazi stuff. But in Germany, you won't get to see the Nazi tweets. They will be it basically is geolocked. And Elon seems to have given this much less thought than everyone at Twitter has given. <laughs> Shocker. I'm just kind of shocked that he announced, like, when he said he wanted to buy this company, it was to protect free speech. And then he immediately goes to this TED Talk and says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just listen to the the, the laws of the co whatever country. And like, OK, but those are not the same thing. OK, so I sort of understand that argument. I, I will say I, I have a sympathy towards that argument Okay. in this specific way. These companies are all pretty big. This is, I think, where the fuzziness with antitrust comes along. So if you're like, there's only four companies that really have a lock in social media, their moderation is, 
I don't know that I agree with all this, but this is my sympathy. Facebook's moderation decisions are opaque to me. There's no process. It doesn't feel fair. Twitter's moderate, whatever it is. It would be better if our elected representatives were voting on speech regulations, right? Like that's, that's where you're going. You're saying, I believe in free speech. I'd rather have the government issue speech regulations than these companies that I hate and are really big and I can't switch away from. Okay. I would put, I, I understand that argument. It is also crazy to be like, what I would like is for the United States to throw away the first amendment and start issuing government speech regulations. It's also the very, the U.S.ness of it comes up again, because there are just, there are a bunch of countries where if you value any kind of free expression, they are not following those rules. Like you just, you cannot possibly say I value free expression and I believe that we need to operate according to these, to like China's regulations. Right. So this is, I've been trying to um, describe the mental flip that you need to make if you're based in the United States. So in the United States, your baseline perspective is that you can say anything you want and the First Amendment prohibits the government from doing all but X, Y, and Z, right? So you're like in a permissive structure and all like, let's do swords is illegal. And that's right. Child pornography is illegal. You could make a, a tortured argument that the expansion of uh, copyright law makes some kind of expression illegal and the government has created a private right. Whatever. That's just me. I'm going to leave that alone. Defamation law, right? It's like there's an explosion in defamation law cases. We're getting more letters than ever for our coverage. Okay. But that's still a permissive structure. There's a small list of things that might reasonably chill your speech. Otherwise, it's a free for all. You go to a company like Alex said, or you go to a country like Alex said, like India, mm-hmm. and it is actually the absolute flip where it's a restricted culture and there's a small list of things you are able to say. And that those countries have demanded that social media companies like Twitter and Facebook have offices there, have employees there. The Indian government has sent the police to Twitter's offices because Twitter was labeling uh, tweets from uh, the BJP party as manipulated information. They're calling out lies from the government and the police showed up at their office. That is a restrictive culture. So if you're based in the US and you're like, it should be the laws of the country, your entire framework is the permissive framework of speech in the United States. Right. And almost everywhere else, it is a restrictive culture where there's right. mostly, mostly you cannot do things. And I don't know that like Elon has thought about it. Elon is not from this country. He grew up in another country with a different attitude towards speech, South Africa. He obviously has huge factories in China, in Germany, Like, it's just unclear why he hasn't thought any of that through. I think he did think it through. And I think he was saying one thing in his SEC filing to, like, drum up support from from his his base fandom. And then another thing in this TED Talk, like, I think he very is cognizant of the fact that he can't have it both ways. But he can say, I'm a champion of free speech. Because what's the, like, the SEC can just be like, no, you're not. Like, they're not going to do that. Like, (laughs) Like, we're all sitting there being like, Nobody, you do, like that doesn't make sense. And he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm a champion of free speech." Like that's just always his kind of like m- modest operandi, right? Like he's always kind of like Twitter was always also did this. Like Dick Costolo was in 2012 or 2011 was like Twitter's we're the free speech wing of the free speech party, and at the same time, yes, we also know that we have to follow the laws of these countries and operate because we're a company. So yeah. it's Lies. it's totally not a unique thing, but the interview was just, and I'm to be clear, blaming Chris Anderson for this. It was an <laughs> atrocious interview. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, 
It's just embarrassing. So let's end here, which I think is the hardest problem in the First Amendment debate. And this was handled very poorly. So we were talking about hate speech earlier. I will just tell everyone, hate speech is not illegal in the United States of America. Various states have tried to pass these laws. The Supreme Court has mostly struck them down. You can just do some hate speech. People think it's illegal because it feels right for it to be illegal because the social platforms themselves have decided they don't want hate speech on their platforms. You know what's really hard to do uh, if you have hate speech on your platform? Sell advertising. So they have like a business imperative. They have a consumer imperative. So social platforms have decided this is unacceptable. You know, norms in society have decided that being outright racist is unacceptable. But there's no law against hate speech in the United States. There's just a bunch of social conditioning. Then Elon going on and on about spam and spam bots, commercial speech is protected speech. So if you think about your physical mailbox where the United States Postal Service delivers you mail, the government cannot proactively filter out junk mail. It should. It, you might want it to. <laughs> there are laws in the books that enable you to opt out of it or to be on a do not mail list or a do not call list. But you, the individual citizen, have to like proactively say it. Right. The government cannot make that decision for you because it's a, it's a prior restraint on speech. Right. This is crazy. This also applies to email. There's a law called the Can Spam Act. You can see if it was effective. But the government basically is like commercial emailers have to provide these tags. They have to give you an opt out. They have to give you a button that says unsubscribe me. But they can't block it. And in fact, the thing that has blocked it most effectively is an email monopoly. This is what Sarah John would tell you, that like Gmail is an email monopoly, and that has been more effective at spam than any government regulation. Take that for what you will. But that's because the First Amendment prohibits the government from doing it. So then Elon is like, the top priority I have is limiting spammers and scam bots and bot armies on Twitter. They make the product worse. I agree with him. But if you're limiting yourself to, I'm following the law of the country, you're kind of immediately in a pretzel of logic, right, Addy? Yes, and it's, again, just one of those things where it feels like there is a specific thing that he just doesn't want the site to do. And then he's trying to build this consistent framework around it. And it's that's very difficult to do when it seems like what he has is just sort of a hobby horse that he doesn't want Twitter to do a thing that feels like it's political censorship, but hasn't can't just like come out and say the things that he's actually upset that they're doing. And so right. makes up this very broad, like it has to follow the law kind of framework. Wouldn't getting rid of all the bots also affect him because of his, his army, bot army of bots? Yeah, like that seems bad for him. I mean, bot is also a, a weird term. Like I assume that like there are a bunch of art bots on Twitter. There are a bunch of really fantastic things. I think he's just mad at the ones that pretend to be him and sell crypto. Right. So but, like, how do you make that distinct distinction? Like here's like another problem no algorithm can solve. Like how do you dis decide between one of the bots that sneakerheads use to know when there's a sneaker drop that's like obviously sending lots and lots of tweets to lots and lots of people at any given moment and the crypto spam bots that reply to Elon every day. Like maybe a person could do it, but like the signals you actually get are very low. Uh, the Verge automatically tweets every story. That's a bot. Is that allowed? Like these are very fine distinctions and saying I'm just going to get rid of spam bots I think is like one of the more challenging aspects of Twitter. Because some of the best parts of Twitter are automated or they're art projects. There's a bot that every time we change the tagline and image in our masthead, there's actually two bots. Every time we change those things, uh, it just tweets what they are. I love that bot. Someone just made it for us. Two, well, two people just made them for us. Are they illegal under Elon law? Like, I don't know. the. You should know the answers to these questions before you propose these kinds of things. We're just, I, we should just all talk about our favorite Twitter bots now. I have a bot that tweets <laughs> random words uh, on Dark Souls You Died screens. Yeah. That's pretty good. My favorite bot is called Color Schemer. 
It just uh, it just comes up with color schemes and gives them insane names. It's great. Students, uh, next week, uh, we need you to read chapter three of the free speech century. Um, come back with your question. I feel like we've, I feel like if we say free speech again, uh, in this podcast, it will combust. Yeah. Uh, we, we can take a break. Uh, this interview sucked, uh, and everyone should feel bad. Um, <laughs> that's what I got for you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it is like directly as I, as I'm saying it, like, as a person who interviews people about their big ideas every week, like if your approach is, I think Twitter's moderation is bad such that it is a threat to civilization, which is more or less what Elon said yesterday, right? This is a civilizational catastrophe ahead of tour. You got to really interrogate that and you got to really be prepared to answer those questions. And if you think that the first amendment is the correct set of rules, like you're going to run into every other country in the world that thinks differently that you are trying to sell Tesla's in. And that's just like a bad dynamic for you. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about gadgets. Yeah. Gadgets for your face. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. All right, we are back. Addie and Mr. Heath are still with us. Let's talk about gadgets. Alex, in the midst of all this, you published a, a huge scoop this week. You have the entire meta AR roadmap, what the company formerly known as Facebook wants to do for computers on your face, it seems challenging. It does seem like bet the company. Walk us through it. Yeah. So everyone remembers that pretty wild video that Mark Zuckerberg uh, shot 
last fall, October-ish, when he announced the rebrand to Meta. Here's a AR, you know, chess game on a table, and you're playing with a hologram. You know, the classic stuff that we've seen in these these demos. There on was stage some fencing, right? Yeah, Mark fenced with a hologram. Let's do swords. See, it all comes back to doing swords. <laughs> <laughs> it's all connected. Um, what is yeah? What is uh, free speech in the metaverse? Oh boy! <laughs> and the holy grail device he's called around all this is AR glasses, which we've talked about a lot on this show. I m- imagine most of our listeners know the distinctions between VR and AR, so I won't explain that right now. But yeah, I set out to answer the question: How soon are these things actually coming? What are they going to look like? And what is the long-term commitment to this as a product category? It turns out it's a pretty long-term big commitment. So they have three generations of these full AR glasses. They're called Nazare. It's Zuckerberg's pet project. And he's got thousands of people working on them, spending billions of dollars. And the first version is coming in 2024. It's going to be an early adopter, developer, gear, device. They're going to sell like low tens of thousands of them. The bill of materials on these glasses is in the thousands of dollars. So they have to figure out how to subsidize that, which is going to be challenging. The battery life is like four hours. So they're mostly going to be used indoors, um, but a pretty impressive field of view, some pretty impressive specs, honestly, custom silicone, custom waveguides, the best of the best, and you know, no expense spared. And that's what we're getting from the company literally investing the most with like a founder led just insane fervor behind it. That's what's coming uh, with that. And then they have another version two years later and another version two years later. And there's another device coming in 2024, another pair of glasses that has like a smaller heads up display that's more Google Glass like that's more kind of notifications. And the distinction, that one's called Hypernova. They all have these like the main air glasses are Orion the smart glasses with the little display are hypernova. And the distinction is that hypernova will be, you know, still needing a phone to work. Uh, so, but it's the idea is to lessen the dependence on the phone and the main air glasses do not need a phone to work. They'll have a, a little phone like device. It's not a phone though, that will offload wirelessly, uh, some of the compute. So it doesn't literally burn your face. Um, <laughs> which we've also talked about on the show. That's what's coming. And what Meta has up its sleeve that I think a lot of people will be surprised by when this ships is this uh, neural interface, I guess we could call it. Mind-reading technology, they don't want to call it that because um, it's not reading your mind. It's not, it's it's not of, mind-reading technology. It's not <laughs> mind-reading. I know, I know, I know. Addie will explain this because she's actually tried it. But... You know, everyone, they bought this company called Control Labs in 2019 for like a billion dollars. It was like 12 people pre-product launch. One of those classic like, huh, funny Zuck multiple acquisitions. And that is kind of the, the key that unlocks all this from an input perspective. Because how do you control glasses on your face? They obviously don't have a touch screen. You're not going to have a mouse with you. You're not going to have a keyboard. You know, what, how do you do that? And so it's this armband, wristband that lets you kind of have a phantom limb to type and control them. So that's at a high level what is coming on the AR side for Meta. Is the idea here, though, that like you can put on this wristband and not lift your hands up and look like a dillweed while you're manipulating things that nobody else can see? 
Addie, why don't you explain? Basically, yes. yes. So they're Magic Leap and HoloLens to different extents, but kind of similar. You use optical tracking. There's cameras in front of you and it can kind of pick up your hands and then you gesture and it's like Minority Report. And the Minority Report interface is both, you look weird because you're gesturing to stuff nobody else can see, but also it's really tiring because you're lifting your hands constantly <laughs> and you have to be in a situation where you know that you... Like it's inside your field of view. You also just, it's tiring because you're moving your actual hands around a bunch and you have to use these graphical interfaces that rely on you grabbing and pulling if you want. But the way that this works is that you put on this wristband and it reads the signals that are going down your arm, uh, down like the neurons there that are telling your hands how to move basically. So it can act like a hand tracker that just doesn't need a camera because it can kind of detect, okay, you want to move your index finger, but it can also detect intention. Like the way that they tell people to start learning how to do this is that you put the armband on and you move your finger, like you make a fist and your virtual hand reflects this because you're telling your arm, I want to make a fist. Then you put your hand on something hard and flat where you can't move it, but you tell your arm to make a fist. And it does the same thing because you are sending the instructions to through your neural system through your arm to say, I want to make a fist. And it doesn't matter that your actual hand isn't doing it. So this is like the same tech that you're seeing with like a lot of um, arm prosthetics, right? Yes, it's really... It's a thing that does a lot of the same work as brain interfaces, like Neuralink. Okay, I shouldn't say Neuralink because Neuralink is like, I don't even know what's going on with it completely. But there are a bunch of brain interfaces, and the idea is that they're supposed to mimic the way that your brain sends signals to your limbs. These are really good if you don't have a working limb there at all. There is not really a super great reason why, if you have a functional limb, you should try to go straight to like jack into your brain to do a thing that you could just tell your arm to do. It's like, I can't remember if I'm stealing this analogy from the actual, from like control labs, but it's like saying I want to write a command and instead of using JavaScript or something, you learn binary code and go and like write in <laughs> binary code. Wait, so I kind of understand why you'd want to do that for an AR interface though, right? You're seeing something no one else can see and you're just like, hit that button, and the button gets hit, like that would rule. Yeah, so Hypernova, the, the, the heads-up display glasses that are more minimal and use a phone, that's the idea is like really fast texting, really f like responding to notifications without needing to talk, without needing to gesture. That's potentially going to be pretty cool. And Addy, like everyone I've talked to who's tried the prototype that's kind of more recent that Meta has that's based on this says it's like one of the coolest tech demos they've ever tried and that it could be like pay for everything if it works at scale. <laughs> um, what do you think? Because you, you tried it. How do you what do you agree there or not? I think literally the only thing I've ever tried tech wise that felt more cool and magical is the Oculus Rift which ironically is also a Facebook thing now. <laughs> I buy everything I like. Um, no, I think it's incredible because the, yeah, the thing I'm getting at is that it feels like mind control to an extent. Like it's not putting a thing literally in your brain, but it's letting you just feel like you're gesturing using your hand, but your hand is not necessarily moving and your hand isn't necessarily using a thing where you have to have a one-to-one, -one, I'm pressing this button. It's like, to some extent, it can kind of learn from the way that you are 
thinking that it can match up when I make this brain pattern, I want this thing to happen. And if you blend that with a bunch of really advanced sort of predictive artificial intelligence systems, you can end up getting these really interesting, smart, like control systems that are super different from anything that you've tried ever in theory. Again, the thing I tried is a very, it was a 2019 demo. It was very early. It was basically playing Pong, but it was super fun. Yeah. And like, so what's going to happen is Meta's going to Trojan horse this into a smartwatch that is coming first this year without this technology that I reported on last year. It'll have a detachable display with two cameras, like a little detachable GoPro on your wrist, which is I've, very Dick Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a classic meta idea that's not going to succeed. So the idea is like get people used to a smartwatch from meta. By the way, like the name change, very much like motivated by all this hardware coming because they know that like the Facebook glasses people in the US are not going to buy, right? So like the meta watch and then by 2024 when the glasses come out, they ship one with Control Labs tech and it syncs with the glasses. And Apple, I don't like Apple's scared of this, I've heard, because of they think it's gonna have privacy concerns, obviously, and people are gonna think it's weird and too intimate. And so Apple's very scared of this space. Snap, I just scooped, bought a similar, it wasn't doing EMG, it was doing a different version of this that you wear on your head, but uh, another BCI company called Nextmind. And they want to hook that up to their spectacles down the road. So everyone's trying to like, with maybe the exception of Apple, come up with this brain BCI interface for these classes. Is Apple scared of it because these other companies are relying on like algorithms and stuff? Because I mean, this technology itself is not new. We're seeing it a lot in the accessibility space. Like it's used for people who are paraplegic and need to control computers and stuff. It's used for people with um, residual limbs, like it's not new technology, and I don't think there's privacy concerns about people being able to pick up a can of soda in real life. Yeah, Apple may come around to it. They've been hesitant. The Apple headset that's coming uh, that I think they'll probably still announce by the end of the year has this ring that they've worked on that has like touch on it that's like their input. So people are finding all these ways that they can try to control these glasses, but it sounds like Meta's cracked something with control apps that maybe will put them ahead there on input. You know, it's funny because, you know, Apple sort of like reverse engineered the Steve Jobs magic. If you like, whenever they do a new category, the watch was like the, the sterling example of this. They're like, what we invented was a new input device. First it was the mouse, then it was the touchscreen, and then it was the digital crown. And you're like, what? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? And so like, what? Force touch. The crown? <laughs> yeah, force touch. Like, uh, Apple, like for a long time, was all in on like what you need to enter a new category is like a big idea about input devices. So if they do glasses and they haven't like they don't drop some big idea about input devices, it will actually be really out of form for them. Maybe it, maybe it's this ring, but it's just strange that they wouldn't be chasing that as hard as anything. I mean, the continuum of these devices is that the glasses are coming later. Meta will probably be first with like something that is like at least consumer like usable like snaps not even selling their ar spectacles because they're so expensive yeah apples is like a developer kit right no the apple headset's going to be consumer i mean it's going to cost a lot of money but um the glasses apple's not close on really so like the continuum will be these high-end mixed reality headsets that cheat into ar by 
mixing high resolution video pass through with AR effects. So that's what Meta is going to do with Cambria headset coming out later this year. Apple's going to do. And then later on that continuum sooner for Meta is glasses that are designed to not fully immerse you. Um, and Zuck's thesis for this is like presence. It's like, you know, uh, <laughs> hollow deck, like holograms of people around you, which like it's supposed to be met in mostly worn indoors, the battery life's like four hours. Neelai, does this sound appealing to you? Would you spend, <laughs> would you spend like a fifteen hundred dollars, let's say conservatively, on something that uh, you know needs a wireless thing in your pocket, an armband that reads your mind essentially, or control with your mind that you? So what gets me about all that, right? If it's primarily designed for indoors, like I don't know why I need to strap a bunch of extra shit to my body to make that go. Because of input, because well, because of computing. And well, input. I don't need the processing on my body. I don't, you know, like maybe the armband, but like I don't need a battery pack. Like if you're telling me this is mostly so I sit. It's not battery. It's not battery. Okay, it has so this to is mostly I'm sitting in my chair in my office, and like you pop up in a hologram. Yes. You're like. Yes. That's it. That's the whole game. Yeah. I I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, for V one, V two, maybe like you can take it outdoors with you and has more battery life and like the it's going to have better optics, lighter design. The first version is going to weigh a hundred grams, which is about four x the weight of regular regular glasses. You're not going to want to wear these for long. People are going to have beefy ears. Yeah, and what I wanted to suggest with the story is like this is all very expensive. He's spending over ten billion a year on this. He's literally bet the company on this. And it's going to take like they're 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 modeling that they may be selling tens of millions of smart glasses collectively between the Ray Bans, between the cheaper Hypernova glasses, between the full AR glasses. That's all of them by like 2028, like maybe tens of millions. And I'm just like, I don't know how much leash they have. So I mean, we've we've talked a lot about AR and and the success of AR. And there's like two big things. One. Have they resolved the dillweed factor? Will you look like a dillweed wearing them? And two, <laughs> have they resolved the fact that there is zero killer app because the best killer app is a privacy nightwear? Well, they haven't been invented yet. Like there's not the problem, like <laughs> the opening of this story is like these glasses <laughs> that they showed in this video, like not based on any running code. It was all Unity prototypes. There's not a wearable prototype internally of V1 yet. It's like a stationary desk board. And like they're hoping to have their wearable prototype internally by the end of the year. Meanwhile, Zuck has literally bet the company on this concept and they do not have a working wearable prototype. So like the guts are incredible. I mean, I got to like there's there's no company that that bets like that. Uh, And we can talk about the motivations. I mean, I put in the story, it's like Facebook and it's always like Apple and Google that are always over them. And this is their chance. Zuck thinks to get out from under them and also just like be seen as innovative and cool again, you know, like cause tra- the traditional social media stuff's not anymore. Then they can't buy stuff. Look, I am very sympathetic to the idea that Facebook will become or meta will become the next great hardware platform that will break the dominance of the two phone platform. Like that sounds great, but the, you're saying the first one is going to connect to your phone and like, Apple's going to have a competitive product right next to it. And like the idea that you're going to spend $10 million a year to turn into Pebble smartwatches because Apple will not let you send a text message in response to a notification on their phone is ridiculous. Like I hear that story and it's like the first thing you're going to do is quickly reply to notifications and it's connected to your phone. 
Like Apple's just going to turn off the notification API for everybody and be like, yeah, the watch can do it and our glasses can do it. Everything else is a security problem. We're very sorry. I'm so fascinated by antitrust, like potentially making Apple have to open up here, but they're not going to want Meta to be anywhere near their glasses and like their and Meta's glasses to be anywhere near their phone. Right. And so how do you, you're right. How do you navigate that? I mean, this just sounds like a, a perfect setup for the usual kind of like Apple playbook. Facebook meta, excuse me, will come in. They'll do this. We'll be like, this is really cool, but not super viable. They'll do it, what, till 2026 or whatever. And then Apple will be like, we figured out AR. Look at the, look at what now you can use your mind to control things from your Apple Watch on your new glasses that we sold you. Isn't it great? Like, they're just going to let Facebook excuse me, meta, figure out all of the like hard parts yeah. and then swoop This in. is classic Apple. It's classic Apple. They love to skip the messy middle of new computing, right? And like Quest has been that up until Quest 2. And they finally, like there were more Quest 2s sold last year than Xboxes. So like that thing is hitting meaningful scale. And the next version will have eye tracking, which will make the avatars like super cool and immersive. So it's only going to get like dramatically better. Apple's watched all that. They've been secretly buying things. They've been building, experimenting, prototypes. They're going to come out with this super high-end luxury, like state-of-the-art with all their M2 chips, sensors, LiDAR, and skip a year, basically, of where Meta has been techno- like in, from the technology standpoint and have like not dealt with all that messy stuff that got up to now. And I think they're going to do the same thing with glasses. I think Mark wants to be out there with them to show that they're the leader, but Apple's going to wait and probably come out and like... I guess my thesis here is that if Meta's coming out with their first glasses by 2024, I wouldn't expect Apple's until at least 2026. It is bizarre that we have not mentioned Google in this because Google is the only one of these companies that is actually currently selling a commercialized AR headset. They also own the company that made the predecessor to Control Labs project, uh, which did not work very well, but was the same idea, was a commercial product like five years before Control Labs existed. Um, and we are totally not talking about them because it seems like it's not even necessarily clear they're doing anything. They probably forgot. Like Sundar probably just <laughs> forgot that he even has any of this, right? Of these three companies, Google has the worst track record for shipping hardware that people actually want to buy. Well, the problem with Google is focus. It's focus. And they have the resources. They have the money. They have the assets. They have the best machine learning. They have maps, with like, which is such a key asset for glasses. They have like, They literally have the world mapped which is like something Meta has to figure out. And they have assistant. They have the most impressive visual assistant that can like just see something and identify it. That's incredible with glasses, right? Like search on your face. They have that. The problem is, is that they don't have like a founder like Mark who is like pushing them to like focus everything on this. And they have a million things going on. They have all this like regulatory scrutiny. They have all these big business lines, all this optionality. And I, you know, I did a story for us about they're, they're doing this high end. They're also working on a high end mixed reality headset. They've all, they have all the big tech guys have all kind of decided the high end mixed reality is like, that's the near term. They have a glasses project. They bought North, which was like making smart glasses. They're working on something up in Canada. Um, it'll work with a phone I'm told. And, but like, I just don't see the passion there from Google yet. I don't see the focus and I see where talent goes and all the talent is either going to meta or Apple right now and back and forth. The thing that like, you mentioned, the founder thing, um, yeah, Mark is a founder of Facebook. I think Tim Cook is very focused on his legacy at Apple. Mm-hmm. And he has been saying for years that health and AR will be his yep. twin legacies. And you can see how he's going to combine all of that. Yep. I repeat this day. all the time, but AR is literally the only thing that Apple and Meta agree on. 
like the only yeah. thing that they agree that is going to be big. So, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> Let's talk about the actual meta glasses for a minute. Cause Addy, you've tried on virtually every one of these products. I've not tried on their stuff. I've not tried on snaps thing, but yeah, I've tried, I on tried those. Stuff, yeah. yeah. But so he, like between the two of you, there isn't a face computer in the world <laughs> that we haven't, we haven't strapped on here. Yes. So these glasses, I'm just, here's Nazare, the full AR experience. Zuck wants three graphics, large field of view, socially acceptable design, which, by the way, if Mark Zuckerberg is like, I need a socially acceptable design. That's a pretty broad remit coming out of Zuck, like full <laughs> sunscreen face, like whatever you want, socially acceptable design, but whatever. The team is hoping for a 70 degree field of view. Maybe that'll happen or won't. They look like the Superman uh, glasses when he's Clark Kent is what Alex wrote here, and they are really heavy. Now, we have talked on the show a lot about just like the stack of problems for AR glasses, right? You've got a display problem. You've got a camera problem. You've got a processing problem. You've got a battery problem. Where is this sitting in the current state of the art, do you think, Alex? It's pretty advanced. You know, a lot of the people I talked to for the story was like, this is actually a pretty impressive, like, tech spec that is in search of a compelling use case because the software side of this is still being built. They actually just decided the OS route they want to take like in December, basically. Which is Fuchsia, which is hilarious. No, no, no. They So they killed they killed the Fuchsia approach. So they were going to do Fuchsia. They were doing a microkernel like... So they're still using Google OSs. They just went to Android. They're using the open source fork of Android and that's the same thing that powers the Quest. So they'll be able to share like app libraries and stuff. So they may be able to bring some of the developer ecosystem over but they were wanting to do a microkernel, like fully custom OS, and they decided that won't ship in time for 2024, basically. So, like, this is like do or die. And, like, yeah. I just, the software side of it is the biggest question mark. They do not have the platform DNA, developer DNA that Apple does. And developers are very wary of Facebook dating back to uh, Farmville and when Facebook <laughs> pulled the plug on all these developers. So, well, Oculus has sort of solved some of this problem, right? Yeah, they, they have. They have. They've, they've got very meaningful, you know, they're buying everything that's doing going really well. But yeah, they do have developers that um, are doing well there. But the software side is the biggest question mark by far. And like, how do you build a holographic codec to use with Messenger or where it works where like on your phone, you can see the hologram, you know, or someone can like, because the idea is like, they've got these social apps that like they could use with the glasses where like, I don't need the glasses to like call you on your glasses. Right. And like, mm -hmm. that's the real unlock. And that's, that's a hard problem that they're still very early on. Adding the displays here, Alex is reporting their costly custom waveguides and micro LED projectors. That's st I'm still just so skeptical of all of these display ideas. That just sounds like what every like everybody right. has custom waveguides and everybody yeah. okay projection tech is like complicated, but it just depends on it depends on how good the waveguards are. Yeah, I mean snaps were for the spectacles; they were custom, but they were working with wave optics on them, and then they just bought wave optics for half a billion dollars um, when they decided they wanted to own that. Uh, but Meta is like they're. I mean, they, they're building everything fully like custom because um, they've decided they have to go that route, which is what Apple has shown is the, kind of the best way forward with like wearables. Right. But I'm saying you're like everyone's in on high end mixed reality. And right. And I think the reason for that is like to really do the glasses, you have to invent a radically new kind of display tech and costly custom waveguides and micro LED projectors. Like maybe they're going to do the best job of that. But that's still... As near as I can tell, like that's still pretty much in the pocket of where everybody is, right, Addy? It's a, just a really broad term. You could, it's such a weird, messy new technology that there could be a really good version of that that's very thin and very interesting and has really good optics, but it doesn't necessarily tell me 
a bunch about how good the system currently is. Like Magic Leap, I think Magic Leap 2 at this point has some of the best stuff that I've seen and tried with some limitations. And I don't know how this would stack up to that. They have at this point a pretty solid field of view. Magic Leap 2 is 70 field of view, isn't it? Magic Leap 2 is 70 diagonal degrees field of view. Yeah, it's they've started shipping them to like small partners. Are the meta headsets going to be because you mentioned in your piece that they were going to be 70 field of view. Is that also diagonal? Are we talking like, no, the that's what the hope that they had. That's the hope that they had. And I don't think they're going to get there because they're, yeah. they're probably going for like a color richness and a, and a resolution. That's very Mark wants very crisp, like vivid holograms like you to feel like you can you're someone's almost there that you're looking at through a porthole on a boat. Yeah, because like these glasses have eye tracking. Magic Leap's holograms at this point are pretty, they're pretty solid, but also in the a package that very much does not look normal. They have basically <laughs> just acknowledged, yeah, look, there's going to be weird big sunglasses. That's what we're doing. Uh, this is what serves our user base. Um, so they have kind of different prerogatives and different requirements. And the meta glasses will have eye tracking, which we consumers have not experienced yet. They will starting later this year with the new Quest and Apple. But like that, that changes the game. I did this demo of a contact lens where it used my eye movement to like do the input and like go around the dial and select the directions. And like that stuff is wild. Like eye tracking com- is going to be very cool and it makes your avatar follow your face and you, where you're looking and all that. So they will have that. Magic Leap 2 does not have that. So I do think from a spec perspective, these will be the best when they come out, but um, they're going to be expensive and they're going to be for early adopters and they're not going to sell that much. So. I'm curious what the early adopter thing is going to is going to do because like Glass tried that and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why people hated Glass so much. Yes. Because it was seen as this thing that you had these very small groups of super rich early adopter guys trying out and they looked like jerks and you hated them. Yeah, they're glass holes. Like, what, what are we going to call these? Are these guys also going to be called glass holes? <laughs> well, the idea is that you won't know. Like, glass was, I mean, this is my favorite. I've sold the story about glass so many times. Glass looks so intense and it came with so much hype in that moment of hype that, like, I went to the Indy 500 wearing Google Glass and, like, <laughs> People were like falling out of trailers in the infield to be like, can you see through clothes? And like, that was the thing that would have sold what Google Glass looked like to people. Like (laughs) they were heartbroken when I was like, no, I cannot see through clothes. At best, it like lightly buzzes and takes a two megapixel photo. (laughs) If I like reach up to like, that's what it does. But I, I think you have to make them look really normal. Right. That's like, that's where everyone is headed with these. They have to look very normal. And to be clear, the first version of these there, there's going to be no mistaking that you don't have normal glasses <laughs> on your face. So like, all right. Uh, well, Alex, this is a great story. We are obviously tracking this very closely. I'm, I mean, this is the next generation of gadgets, right? Like, yeah, it's like folding phones and this and my, you know, one of my big theses is that display technology drives the generations of gadgets. Like if you can predict display technology, you can predict the shape of things and that will like folding phones is that thing. I imagine Apple's working on one of those too, right? Like it's just about that time for that to hit the mainstream and right next to it is, can we make the display that goes on your face? And I'm, I'm very curious to see how this plays out, but which will happen first, Elon making Twitter a bastion of free speech or really good displays for our face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with face displays. I got to be honest yeah, with you. Same. Uh, all right. We have gone spectacularly over time. I appreciate all of you. I appreciate all of you for listening to us. Uh, you can tweet at us. 
I'm very confident the Elon bots will be tweeting us this week. Alex is Alex H. Kranz. The other Alex is Alex E. Heath. That's good. It worked out. Addy is at the Dextriarchy. Liz is MS Lopato. I am reckless on Twitter. It was a fun week on TheVerge.com. Actually, uh, Corin, our new senior security reporter, had a big story on why crypto bridges or what all the hacks are. So if you've been watching all these crypto hacks, like he has a deep dive into like why it's happening and the structure that creates it. Um, and then on Decoder, we had more crypto. Chris Dixon, who is – Forbes just called him the number one VC in the world. He's the big Web3 VC. He and I got into it on whether any of that stuff is real. It was a really fun conversation. I'm just going to tell the Vergecast audience this now. Next week on Decoder, on Tuesday, Alan Young, the guy who was in charge of the Foxconn project in Wisconsin, <gasps> asked us to be on Decoder. Oh, wow. And it was nuts. At one point, I was like, what's in the dome? And he's like, I got to be honest with you. I think the dome should have been bigger. And it was like, yes. <laughs> I don't know, man. When he's right, he's right. I was like, yeah, I agree with you. I, I can't. I find no fault in any. If anyone tells me a dome should be bigger, I'm in it. I agree. Uh, it was just a bonkers conversation. He has a book. I don't know. Man. I don't know why he has to be on the show, but he has a book. It's coming out. That's on Tuesday on Decoder. All right. That's it. Rock and roll. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.